My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. We keep losing viable groups as formerly terrific sectors go flat. That's one of the main reasons why this market has become so frustrating. It's a real threat to whatever bull markets are left. And the ones that are left out, boy, are they painful. The, the recent sell-offs, they're much more extreme than our rallies. We just don't have enough sectors with strong prospects, which leads to a shortage of viable stocks. And that's why the universe of winners is so narrow here. Even on a day where the averages rebounded hard from the lows, Dow finishing off just 10 points, S&P dipping 0.13%, NASDAQ declined 0.12%, was positive for some of the day. You know, as I say every night, there is always a bull market somewhere. But darn, it's getting pretty hard to find it. So tonight I want to talk about what's happened, about some of the vanishing bull markets, the ones that are at the precipice or tipped, because you need to know how this business has become so darn hard. What's causing these bull markets to morph morph into bear markets? Is it interest rates, strapped consumer, end of the post-COVID heyday? Maybe a little bit of all of them? Why don't we go down the list, you and me? The list of the lost bulls. Maybe we can find a couple. Let's start with what has been a real stalwart, travel and leisure. When we were locked up with COVID, we craved travel and going out. When the pandemic ended, we realized we were long on money, but short on time. So we set out for points unknown. That drove the airlines, the hotels, restaurants, stocks higher. Just an incredible bull market. But in the last few weeks, with the rise in fuel costs and the decrease in disposable income because of tightening credit, we pretty much obliterated the entire thesis. Everything from Disney to Marriott to Delta to Darden to Carnival has been nothing short of disastrous. The House of Pain. Same goes with America. You Airbnb. It doesn't matter how well they're doing. We're talking about the stocks, not the companies. Wall Street has collectively rendered a judgment that next year has to be worse than this year. Given the spike they had post-COVID, the travel and leisure stocks are now among the most accursed post-COVID hangover cohort we have. There's no more escaping it than there is escaping the declines in Zoom or Moderna and Pfizer, arguably the three biggest winners during the pandemic, and then the losers after it. How bad is this travel and leisure bust? Marriott just had an analyst meeting where they talked about great growth ahead, and nobody cared. The cruise lines, they have phenomenal bookies. The assumption is they simply can't last. Sure, Disney has tepid Disney World numbers in Florida, but they're still above the 2019 level. And Disneyland's jam-packed. Shanghai Disney's incredibly strong. Their cruise ships are booked solid. All that happens, though, is that drip, drip, dripping of Disney's market cap. It's been poleaxed beyond all recognition if you back it out which is hard for me to watch because my travel trust has been a buyer. And the restaurants? Well, now that Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk have drugs that knock out cravings for food, how the heck do we start buying McDonald's with that Big Mac fries and Diet Coke? 
I bet McDonald's sells fewer and fewer as these new weight loss drugs become more and more popular, and therefore those foods become less and less tasty. More on that later, but trust me when I say, for many people on Wagovi or Munjaro, that's the Nova Nordisk and Lui drugs, a cheesecake factory is about as appetizing as a tool and die factory. Almost no group has been hurt as badly as the airlines because they lost the business traveler and they had to raise fares to ever higher levels in order to stay ahead of jet fuel. The airlines seem to have priced themselves out of growth. They're casualties of, well, everything. Huh? Next group was housing. For the longest time, the home builders had shown tremendous restraint, building just what was needed and seemingly not a house more. That was fantastic for Toll Brothers, Lennar, Pulte, D.R. Horton, KB Home. Given that we had a tremendous uh, housing shortage in this country, these companies were able to continually raise prices. They were printing money, needing very little resistance. Now, there is still tremendous demand out there, but mortgage rates have gotten so high, around 8%, versus, say, 3.5% not that long ago, that a substantial part of the population has indeed been priced out of the housing market. It's happened so quickly that it's possible we may have had a traditional housing cycle finally on our hands, where the homebuilders are still building, except that now it looks like they may be building too aggressively, and the buyers are walking away because of those high mortgage rates. I have no doubt that there are many people who want a home, but if they can't afford it, it doesn't matter. We know the Fed's very concerned that home prices have gotten too high. Higher mortgage rates will make it so there are more homes left on the market, which historically has led to more affordable housing. The cycle might be back. At the moment, there's still no excess inventory to speak of. But just like the travel stocks have come down despite strong bookings, the housing stocks are telling us that the housing bull market sick of working it. When the economy teeters toward a recession, historically, we're supposed to reach for the food stocks, the staples. But what if these new weight loss drugs, those are the GLP-1s that I talked about, continue to take the country by storm? What if Walmart's off, almost offhanded comments about how they're starting to see uh, sales being impacted by these drugs take, say, become even, uh, I don't know, much more standoutish? I don't know what to say. It was so offhanded. But do you really want to own Smuckers knowing it paid more than $5 billion for Hostess? The owner of Twinkies and Ho-Hos? Part of the potentially disrupted snack category that maybe Walmart's talking about? I can easily argue that people always love junk food, and not everyone's going to take these expensive new drugs. However, we're not in that kind of market. People are now assuming that everyone will take the expensive new drugs, and that the whole category is going to be disrupted. If Marriott stock can be savage, even though it just said business is great and Marriott's a trusted brand, what are you supposed to think about Smucker? Or how about ConAgra, which is on tonight? They're talking about a stretched consumer not buying some core staples they sell. But can the consumer be all that stretched with sub 4% unemployment and wage growth that the Fed thinks is too hot? Should we pay as much for this company's earnings as we did before the advent of these new weight loss drugs? I'm sure ConAgra has many ways to boost sales. But this is a glass half empty market, people. And anything that might damage their future growth is viewed as a serious problem. How about retail? Now, we know there are cross-currents everywhere. Some good, including robust employment. Some bad. Merchandise that might be too expensive because of inflation. But theft destroyed a lot of the good, and markdowns took down what was left. I think people have all but given up on a Walgreens and CVS giant change because it's impossible for them to prevent theft without putting all the most popular stuff behind lock and key. Even Home Depot's got stealing issues. Same with Target. It's hard to find someone in the retail business that doesn't have this problem, except for Costco and Amazon. Groups of pariah. Utilities crushed because not only are their dividends too small to compete with bonds, they need to borrow money constantly because this is an extremely capital-intensive industry. Telcos. Have you seen those stocks? ATT down 19%, yielding suspicious 7.5%. Verizon, 
a suspect 8.4% yield. Capital intensive industry both need to borrow money endlessly. And don't forget the banks. They do poorly when interest rates go this high because these are levels where you begin to see real credit problems, something we haven't had to cope with in ages. Not that the bank stocks had run all at all. They just feel doomed, especially the regional banks, which are deep in bear market mode. Now, of course, if we get a different interest rate environment, some of these bear markets can turn into bull markets. I'm waiting for that employment number tomorrow morning at 830 again, though. That's not the point. We've lost a ton of groups, and in their places, we picked up none. Only tech has a real bull thesis right now, and many feel that that's already overdone because they don't think that AI can be that powerful. I think it can be. I think it's attractive. Bottom line, the bear is roaming free right now except in tech. It's irrepressible. Without more sectors changing their coloration, any rally will be constrained beyond a short oversold pop unless employment cools, wage growth goes negative, and interest rates finally retreat from their record run higher. Tyler in California. Tyler. Hey, Big Booyah from California. How you doing, Jim? Hey, good to talk to you, Tyler. What's happening? Hey, I'd like to give a shout-out to my sister, Sasha. She's a new investor. And I'd like to ask about Clorox. Despite the bad earnings yesterday, should that be a long-term investment, or is that only a COVID play? Okay, I went over their different brands today to try to figure out who took share during the cyber thesis in the cyber hack. The thesis is a failed one. Almost no one's going to take share from Clorox because they own the best names in the business, and no one's putting private label on Clorox. So let's do this. Let's just say that it only yields 3.8. I think you can go to 4.5 yield. Let's do it by yield. And that's when you can start buying Clorox, and not before then, because they don't seem to have their arms around all the problems with the hack, and it's only down 10% for the year, only. The universe of winners is narrowing right here, right now. Without more sectors changing their coloration, any rally could be constrained, and the bear might continue to roam free. Oh, man, money tonight. I'm laser-focused on the consumer packaged goods stocks and the impact of the glp ones drugs may have on the space. And I'm hearing if that concern could be warranted, maybe with Conagra Brands. Then Levi's reported after the bell. The quarter was not perfect. Let's find out more. I'm running through the numbers, talking to the company's top brass. And the beer business continues to drive strength, but Constellation stock sure didn't. What's happening there? I'm going to get a read on the sector and the stock with the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. the recent run-up in bond yields, dividend stocks have been put through the meat grinder. That includes many of the food and beverage plays that we've now realized will come under some pressure, perhaps because of this new class of weight loss drugs. That was Zenpik, Munjaro, more on that later. But at a certain point, these food stocks become too cheap to ignore, don't they? So, uh, are we there yet? Take ConAgra Brands, the packaged food powerhouse you know as Bird's Eye, Marie Callender, Healthy Choice, Slim Jim, Orville, Redenbacher, Hebrew National, and many others. This morning, ConAgra reported what I call mixed quarter, with lower than expected sales and organic growth because price increases weren't enough to make up for decline in volumes. Still, those, vo- those price increases let them post a nice earnings beat. And Magic reiterated their long-term guidance, talking about a strong uh, end of the year. In response, the market seemed confused. ConAgra opened down 2.7%, then rebounded to up 2% at one point, for ending the day off about 2%. At this point, the stock's now down roughly 34%, yields 5.4%. 
Is the worst behind them? We got to find out. Let's take deep with Sean Conley. He's the president and CEO of Conanger Brands. Learn more about the quarter. What comes next, Mr. Conley? Welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim, how are you? All right, Sean. So let's get right to it. I look at a stock that's down this much, that yields uh, 5%, it's at 25. And I'm not going to suddenly say, wait a second, everything's going great here. Then what happened? I mean, you've been pretty forward. There's some real issues. I want you to address them because one of them involves a a 40-year trend that seems to have reversed. And I want to know whether there's something fundamentally wrong to Frozen because that's so important to you. Why don't you go over what you saw? Because this was a little bit different from what I was hoping for, obviously. But you're stuck by what you think is going to happen in the second half. Yeah, sure, Jim. Let's uh, take it from the top. We had a very good quarter in terms of our supply chain performance, our gross margin expansion, our operating margin expansion, and paying down debt. The soft spot in the quarter was on sales. And you got to keep in mind, we're two years into the largest inflation super cycle that I've seen in my 32 years in the food business. And by and large, the consumer has been very resilient. But over the course of the summer, we did start to see some behavioral shifts. It was a paradoxical combination of selective splurging and also broad-based belt tightening. So maybe the same consumer would say, the heck with it, I'm going to take a trip this summer and I don't care what it costs. And a minute later, they would reprioritize their purchases in order to create offsets. Within food, that meant some tailwinds for some businesses and some headwinds for other businesses. We experienced both. Our multi-serve meal business, for example, had a tailwind, but our frozen single-serve meal business had a bit of a headwind. Now, that's a business that has been a juggernaut and has been growing for us for many years. We're the leader in the marketplace. We're the largest player in frozen food. And so we don't look at this as any more than a temporary consumer tactic to try to create offsets for expenditures that they were determined to make over the course of the summer. All right, so tomorrow we're getting an employment number. One of the things that the Fed is very worried about is obviously wage growth, maybe too hot, uh, jobless. <laughs> we have 3.6, 3.7% unemployment. Why is it? Why is that not resonating more? We've got so many people with jobs. I would think that they'd be doing single serve, whatever they like in the great frozen fruit category you have. Well, you've got lower income consumers whose household balance sheets have become very stretched and where they typically rely on convenience items at the top of their priority list over the course of the summer when they did commit to other expenditures like travel, they prioritized multi-serve meals. Think of that as stretchable meals that feed more mouths at once. And so we saw a bit of a mixed shift there. But one thing we've learned about the consumer over the years is that Habits and practices are very hard to change for the long haul. And the single most unshakable trend in consumer packaged goods in the last 50 years is the need for convenience because people live very busy lives in food. They want great tasting food. That's a great value. That's healthy for you. But they don't want cleanup. They don't want prep. And that's where frozen single serve meals come in. We've got a phenomenal business, the best in the U.S. We're not concerned about these short term behaviors because, frankly, We've got a multi-year, multi-decade track record of growth in this area. Okay, so the Wall Street Journal had this article today, citing a Morgan Stanley study that talked about uh, these new weight, weight loss drugs, well, also for diabetes and some other things. And people are worried. And people feel when Walmart said, look, there's been a little bit of a slowdown, that it's already these drugs. I mean, what's your uh, big pick think about these drugs and what they could mean for ConAgra? Yeah, I'll give you my thinking on that, Jim. Obviously, it's very early days. As my peers have said, no one really knows exactly how prevalent these these drugs are going to become. But let's say they become more prevalent. If that were to happen, I believe we would be very well positioned. You have to keep in mind that health and wellness has always been a central part of our ConAgra Way playbook. 
particularly in our two biggest businesses of Frozen and Snacks. Take Frozen as an example. Our two biggest businesses are Bird's Eye Vegetables and Frozen Single-Serve Meals like Healthy Choice. These are products that have great nutrients, low sodium, low fat. Uh, all the things you don't want are out of it, but all the things you do want are in it. So if we were to find ourselves in a situation where suddenly more consumers are looking for healthier meals and portion control, products like Bird's Eye and Healthy Choice are incredibly well positioned and we'd be happy to turn those consumers into loyalists of our brands. Similarly, in our snacks business, our top two snack categories are meat sticks and popcorn, brands like Slim Jim and Angie's Boom Chicka Pop. These are healthier snacks. These are not cookies, these are not chips, these are not candy. So if we were to suddenly find snackers looking to rethink their current snacking choices for healthier alternatives, we'd be happy to welcome them to the family. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Left out of all these stories, the biggest risk and the most concern that I see when I talk to the doctor community, you're not getting enough protein. Now, no one talks about that. You Can you double down on protein? Because that what is what is missing in the diet that must be had for people who are taking the GLP-1s. Yeah, our demand science team, Jim, tracks all of these trends. And the definition of healthy has changed virtually nonstop yes. since the 90s. At one point, it meant less fat. It meant less calories. It meant lower carbs. It's meant uh, grain-free. It's meant whole grain. It's meant fiber. It's constantly changing. So what we do is we study the current trends, then we design those trends into our products so that we're always contemporary and relevant and provocative. These days, with these new drugs coming on, it might mean things like portion control. It probably would mean things like more protein, more vegetable nutrition, fewer carbs. We've got all of that in our playbook, and we can deploy it as necessary. All right, terrific. I'm glad you, you explained it to everybody. In the meantime, I know that because of the margins and expansion, you've got no problem with the dividend. It's an easy easy do for you. I just keep hoping you, you, you get to where exactly what you say. You shuffle the portfolio so it's got all the things that you need. I want to thank Sean Connolly, president and CEO of ConAgra Brands, for coming on the show. Thank you, Sean. Good to see you. Thanks, Jim. Okay, Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up, is this stock as rugged as the denim it sells? A look at Levi Strauss next. Is there any hope for the hated apparel stocks? Tonight, Levi Strauss reported, and while the stock's down and after hours traded, this wasn't a terrible quarter. Sales came in soft. Earnings were a little bit higher than expected. The management did lower their full-year sales forecast and said the earnings would come in at the low end of the previous range, and that is not good. However, Levi's finally seems to be getting its inventory in the right position. If you adjust for some quirky issues, inventory was up only 1%. That's a huge improvement versus the double-digit increases we've seen in the last few quarters. Remember, excess inventory is the bane of all retailers, so getting this under control is a major positive. So we got to ask, could it be turning a corner? Is this the bottom after a not great quarter? Just yet from the market close, we spoke with Chip Berg, the president and CEO of Levi Strauss and Company. Take a look. Mr. Berg, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to talk to you, Jim. Okay, so Chip, let's go over some of the things that I think were standout. First of all, it looks like that your direct consumer business is on fire. Is that how people are now choosing to be able to order Levi's? Is that the preferred way? Yeah, I think, you know, our, our direct-to-consumer, we were really pleased with the results. We were up double digits, um, 13% growth. We grew in all three regions, in all of our direct-to-consumer channels, so mainline, outlet, and e-commerce. And we also comped positively 
in mainline outlet and e-commerce across all three regions. So, you know, clearly the consumer loves coming into our stores. The teams in our stores do a great job executing. And it really is, it, you know, strategically, it is very, very important to us. It has been for as long as I've been here in the last 12 years, we've gone from it being 20% of our business to now over 40% of our business. We've set a goal to get it to 55% of our business over the next five years. Um, so it is strategically really important. It's driving our results. Unfortunately, you know, a really soft wholesale business globally offset all of that growth. But at the same time, because I care about the holiday season more than any other, you, you're coming in with inventories okay, which to me says you're going to a lot of full price sale, and that's very positive. Yeah, our inventories are clean, and you know the sense that we've got uh, with our customers is their inventories are clean too. Uh, you know, I'm hoping that that sets up a less promotional holiday period than what we had a year ago when everybody had way too much inventory, including us. You know, we have been struggling with inventory. We were very high on inventory uh, uh, earlier in the year, and we've been working really hard to get it back down. And now our inventory trends are very closely aligned to our revenue trends. But we still have more work to do there, and I think we still have plenty of opportunity to unlock uh, quite a bit of working capital because our inventories are still higher than they need to be. Okay, so what would you say to how you get brick and mortar to do better? And let me give you a thesis. You know, everyone's really focused on this Ozempic and these different drugs, and I don't think it's wrong to ask whether there isn't a refresh. That people who are 34 waste, maybe they got to go 32. I mean, there are you know, 7 million, maybe going to 14 million, maybe going to 20 million in this country. Is that even possible or am I just being fanciful? Well, you know, one of the things that did drive the category kind of coming out of the pandemic was about 40 percent of consumers had a waste change. Some people went up, some people went down, but that definitely drove it. Um, you know, we were also helped by a new denim cycle with a looser, baggier fit. Um, you know, the, the denim category and the apparel category were both soft this last quarter. And and you you and I have been talking for a long, long time, Jim. You know I am not the kind of guy to stand up and give a weather report associated with the business. But everybody knows this was the hottest summer that we've right. had in history, um, the hottest June, the hottest July, the hottest August. And our wholesale customers, their assortment is very, very narrow. Um, you know, they tend to sell mostly blue jean bottoms. And it's hard to sell a pair of Levi's blue jean bottoms when it's 110 degrees outside. And, and I think that did kind of contribute to the, the softness that we saw in wholesale. You contrast that to our retail stores, our owned and operated stores, where we're in control of the assortment. We had, you know, way more shorts, dresses, right. skirts you know, um, tank tops, things like that, that were seasonally appropriate. And we can we can adjust pretty quickly for the season. And I think that, you know, contributed to the stronger results in DTC. Waist size change always drives a uh, new closet. Right. Absolutely. And so sure definitely help. All right. So uh, beyond yoga, you came on July 6th and talked about how you're really happy with the results. I kind of reconcile that with the impairment charge. I didn't understand. There, I'm sure there's something behind the $90 million impairment charge that is because you actually had some really good, you had sales up 25%. So it totally reconciled what you said on July 6th about sales. But I didn't understand that $90 million impairment charge. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are a number of factors that went into it, Jim. Um, valuations have come down. That certainly contributed to it. Cost of capital has gone up. That's contributed to it. But I think one of the biggest dynamics is we've just been 
more disciplined than what we had in our acquisition plan in terms of new store openings. And, um, you know, at this point in time, we've got five stores open. We're opening our fifth store here real soon. We'll have six stores open by the end of the fiscal year. We'll probably add another five or six or so next fiscal year. We're really trying to get to a profitable success model for brick and mortar retail. And then when we've got that, we're going to start stamping them out much quicker. We expected when we acquired the business based on the structural economics of this business that we'd be cranking out a lot more doors than what we've actually been able to do up until this point. So blame it on our being a little bit more fiscally conservative and also on valuations and cost of capital. And those are really the main contributing factors to the impairment. But Having said all of that, I said it last quarter, I'll say it again, You know, we were up 25% on Beyond Yoga. This brand has got a really bright future. And you know, if you take a look at how long did it take Lululemon, how long did it take Athleta, some of the other brands that have been around for decades now to really get to scale, we've just got to be impatiently patient to get this thing going and get that success model clearly identified. And then this becomes a big global brand driven by DTC. So you are sticking with the, you think it could be a billion dollar brand because that's very important for your valuation that that happens. Yeah, I mean, it's, and and the structural economics on this business are really, really strong. I'm not putting a number, a date associated with that billion dollars, Jim, but when we bought it, it was less than a hundred million dollars. And what we're trying to get to is this, you know, a success model that's profitable and accretive that we can then, you know, and is investment grade so we can start, you know, investing capital into growing it more aggressively. And, and we're being disciplined about getting there. And I want to be sure, I mean, you did have to lower your full year sales growth, but I don't get the sense that you're worried about the holiday season in part because of the inventories. But it sounds like, look, the, the weather can get better, but you're, you're not pessimistic about the holidays. Not pessimistic, I guess I would say cautiously optimistic. You know, the macro environment is clearly impacting our business, particularly in wholesale. We have two value brands, Signature and Denizen, that, you know, are really targeted towards that value consumer in Walmart and uh, uh, Target, respectively. Those businesses were down double, you know, kind of big double digit. And um, so that, that middle income, moderate income consumer they're making tough budget choices right now, and, and it's negatively impacting apparel and denim right now. And, and But this too shall pass. And when it does, what gives me great confidence in the future is the strength of our brand. And, and I've got all kinds of proof points. Our gross margins, our AUR is still up, our, um, you know, the strength of our business. In fact, even here in the U.S., where, where wholesale was down double digits, our mainline business that sells the mm-hmm. most premium priced product that we got in our uh, in our assortment grew double digits. And so, you know, we've got a lot of strengths to lean on. We just have to get through this tough economic period okay. and work with our wholesale partners to get that business growing again. Fair enough. Chip, you always tell us straight, and I really appreciate it. Chip Berg, President CEO of Levi's, and I, I, I love having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Jim. Absolutely. Great to be with you. Yeah, my back here. Coming up, what can't beer do? How the Suds powered Constellation brands to a quarter worth toasting. Next. What are you doing when your favorite stocks turn into a punching bag? 
Well, you do some homework to figure out if you're getting a buying opportunity or maybe the bull thesis is broken. Take Constellation Brands, STZ, the beer, wine, and liquor company, best known for Corona, Modelo, Pacifico. After a monster run over the spring and summer, Constellation peaked at 273 and changed in August. And since then, it's been slammed along the rest of the market. I thought the company could turn things around when it reported this morning, but the stock sold off hard, down 3%. So what the heck is going on? When you look at the overall numbers, I thought they were very good. Constellation gave us a small revenue beat and a big earnings beat. Management raised their full-year earnings forecast. Core beer business is on fire. They raised their beer guidance, too. But the company also has a much smaller wine and spirits division that's not doing so hot. And they saw the huge investment in canopy growth, which wasn't talked about that much, but is viewed as an overhang. Plus, even though Constellation raised its full-year forecast, it did so by less than it beat expectations of the quarter, something that Wall Street just does not like. We own Constellation Brands for the Charitable Trust, and our conclusion is that the stocks buy into this weakness. I don't want to take it from me, though, because you know that I own it for the Charitable Trust. We got to take it from Bill Newlands, who's the president and CEO of Constellation Brands, get a better read on the quarter and what comes next. Mr. Newlands, welcome back to Mid Money. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. Okay, so, Bill, let's get first right to the top. Beer was absolutely terrific. Uh, solid results. I like the depletions, which is what matters. Uh, growth of nearly 8% led the industry. So uh, why do you think that didn't have more of an impact on people who own the stock or, or the analysts who talk about it? Well, you touched on it in your opening. I think it's a great buying opportunity. When you think about the, the success of our business, we just continue to outperform the industry in great ways. Modelo was up almost 9%, Pacifico was up 15 the Chilada business was up 40 and we still see very solid success with, with Corona. So our business is performing, particularly on the beer side, very, very well. Uh, and we expect it to do that for a long time to come. Now, you do have an $800 million authorization, but you got a November 2nd meeting. I would prefer you to come out with all guns blazing then. I know you're not going to say right here, listen, we're authorizing all that tomorrow. But that, when you, your stock falls 3% when you see those numbers, it's got to be tempting to think, well, 240 seems awfully, awfully inexpensive. It certainly is. It's a great buying opportunity for many of your listeners, Jim. Uh, we, we look at this all the time, and, and obviously our history has been uh, in these kinds of instances, we're not afraid to buy back stock. We recently, as you know, had a $5 billion buyback scenario. And as you point out, we still have $800 million available uh, from our board to do, to do more buybacks. Certainly, the situation is not reflective of where we see our long-term success. Now, let's talk about the, the uh, turn in wine and spirits, which is so needed. I mean, your wine brands are absolutely terrific. Spirits, I know you have to do some sprucing up. Uh, the numbers were, I'm sure, not up to your expectations, but it seems like you do have a plan. I got some sense of the plan, but maybe you can tell our viewers more about this division. I hate this division hurting. What's going on with beer? Certainly. A couple of things were in play here. One is we've done a lot of change to our business. Uh, Three years ago, two-thirds of our business was in the mainstream, and the mainstream is very unhealthy. Uh, Today, it's one-third. And even though that area continues to drag on the overall business, the top end of our wine business is doing quite well and taking share. We're going to continue to evolve our portfolio to the higher end of the business. And secondarily, we've always shipped uh, with... It depletes and shipments have not always matched each other. We've insisted this year that they do that. What that means is the first part of the year uh, goes against a much tougher uh, scenario from last year. Uh, That should reverse itself in the back half of the year. So we expect over the course of the whole year, the wine and spirits business is going to look just fine and will be within our guidance. But but what's happened to the so-called clears and the browns? They don't have that pickup that I expected. It's almost like you had a dry January and it stayed dry. Well, to some degree, 
uh, we, we still think there's, there's lots of opportunity. You know, things like ready to serve. Our, our ready to serve business with High West and our meat compo ready to serves and the tequila side are both doing extraordinarily well. So there is continuing evolving of, of what the consumer is picking up. Uh, but we think we're well positioned to take advantage of that. Now, I am surprised. I spoke to uh, to Molson Coors the other day, and it looks like with you guys, too. People are liking these non-alcoholic beers. Now, you and I go back a long time. That was something that, frankly, it didn't taste great, so people didn't order it. What's happened? Because these numbers, this growth in these numbers tell me that people have discovered it's, a, it's something that is worth drinking, that it's tasty. It is. I, when you taste Corona non-alcoholic, which is, as you probably know, is the number one share gainer in the non-alcoholic sector uh, this past quarter, it, it tastes very good. It tastes very similar to Corona Extra, which has always been the problem, is consumers haven't always liked a non-alcoholic or a very low-alcoholic uh, version. Uh, we've solved for that, and it's showing in the results. Similarly, we introduced Oral, which is the first light beer under Modelo, and that has performed extremely well. And it all speaks to the betterment trend. You're seeing a subset of consumers look for betterment. We see the same thing in our wine business. Mayomi uh, has brought out a lower cal, lower alcohol Pinot Noir, and Kim Crawford the same in Sauvignon Blanc, and both of those have been leading their sectors as well. So it's certainly a trend, i.e. betterment. Okay, uh, speaking of trends, we had the Wall Street Journal today talking about the Zozempic. We know uh, uh, Walmart talked about how uh, there's maybe a slightly uh, slight drop uh, in the food category. Is it also impacting beer or is beer kind of exempt because it's a, a different kind of occasion? It's, a, it, it's more of an experiential drink than it is a drink with people worried about whether it's weight, putting on weight or not. I think you're right. We've seen no visible impact and we have... In- as you know, we engage with consumers all the time. No one has ever brought that up in our discussions with consumers. And part of it is the whole alcoholic experience is around social interaction. Right. And that's not always about the betterment scenario, although it is with a subsegment, as we talked a moment ago. So we think this is quite overblown as it relates to our category. All right, where are we with the, with the balance sheet? I know you're a stickler. You don't want to have too much debt. You want to be able to buy back as much stock as you can, but you certainly don't want to put any sort of rating in jeopardy. The, the company generates a huge amount of cash. Are you satisfied with where you are? Do you think you can still drop that leverage? Uh, we think we can drop the leverage. We've said we're going to get back down to three. As you know, it went up a shade when we did the collapse of the B shares. But we believe we can get back to three. We'll remain investment grade. It still allows us to do both buybacks and dividends. Our, our capital allocation prop process has been very disciplined over the last several years, and we plan to keep it that way. And how is it uh, with your new board members uh, suggested by, uh, by LA Partners? Uh, it's been very good. Uh, our collaboration with Elliott has been very positive. Uh, they've reinforced many of the things that we were already doing, and they've been a big help to us in our, in our preparation for our investor day. So that interaction has been quite good. It's also been very helpful what we've done on a governance basis. As you know, we've changed our board to some degree. Uh, we have two new board members that brought increased financial expertise to the board. Uh, our two longest serving members as part of refreshment stepped down and did not run for re-election. And we're out searching for a new independent chair of our board. 
who we think can also add some value. So we're very excited about some of the governance improvements that we've seen over the last year. And then just one last thing. Uh, I was trying to figure out the bar business versus the uh, ad, uh, store business where people are buying and not. Uh, bar not as strong versus the, the actual supermarket? The supermarket sales have been very strong. In fact, one of the things that's been interesting to watch is our IRI Sertana data has been much stronger uh, than we normally see. There's always a little bit of delta between that and your actual depletions. That has expanded because many of these uh, chain operations are doing a much better job comparatively than, than what some of the smaller uh, uh, shops are doing. Relative to on-premise, on-premise, I'd say you know the single biggest thing that's caused a little bit of challenge is football season has been late to start right. because the weather's been so warm. You know, there's a little bit of, I go, I'm, I'm getting cold, I'll go inside, I'll watch the game. That hasn't really picked up this year to the degree, although at least here in Chicago, the weather's about to drop out of the floor at the end of the week. So that'll probably pick up. All right. Well, look, I'm looking forward to the November 2nd meeting. I hope that there'll be some news. Maybe you come on if it's really exciting. We always welcome you. Bill Newlands is Constellation Great. Brands President and CEO. Thanks, Bill. Good to have you on. Thanks, Jim. All right. Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Dad, Time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with Mitchell in Texas. Mitchell. Yo, Kramer. Hey, man, what's man, up? Give, what's up, man? I want to give you and the team a big shout-out, man. I really appreciate calling in. Team is fabulous. Yeah, Makes me look good every night. What's happening? Hey, I got top golf for you. Um, stock's losing a lot of money right now. I bought 100 shares, I think at 17, and I just bought another 100 yesterday. I, I think so. you're going to be right, but I'll tell you, I can't be the axe because I did like the stock at higher levels, but it's doing, you know, the company is making money. And I think it's a great experiential situation, but I have been wrong. Let's go to Bo in Alabama. Bo! Jimmy Chill, how are you doing? The Chill Man is in the house. We're doing fine. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Listen, let me get some pros and cons on Ticker. S-A-B-R. Well, you know, to travel, when I come up with anything travel that's still working, I'm going to have to go to booking. I think BKNG is the stock that you want to be in, not, not S-A-B-R. Let's go to Raj in California, please. Raj. Yes, sir. This is Raj Bagai from California. I'm concerned regarding BlackBerry stock. Uh, you know what? I saw them trying to range the, it's almost like they're ranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? They're trying to spin off some IoT. I'm not going there. I'm not a believer. I haven't been a believer now for uh, 10 points. I'm not changing. Let's go to Chad in Washington. Chad. Hey, Chad, speak to me. Come on, big guy. Hey, booyah, Mr. Kramer. Yo, yo, what's happening? I got a stock that's making me pull my hair out, and I don't have much left. Uh, do I buy, hold, or dump Under Armour? Oh, boy, it's so low. But, we, you know, look, we got to see something. We got to see a good quarter. We have to see something that tells me uh, that Stephanie Leonard's is doing a, a, a good job because it's down 35%. I don't have enough data to make me say, buy it. Let's go to Blake in New York. Blake. Hey, Jim. So I've had some Shopify stocks here for the last few years now. Okay. And nice little run. 
Should I keep buying more or take No, don't buy more because you've got a good position. And I think we have to wait for it to come down to buy more because it sells at 97 times earnings. It's one of the few winners in this market where we have a lot of losers, but don't buy any more right now. Let's go to David in Michigan. David. Booyah, Jim. Thanks for Booyah. taking my call. Oh, sure, David. Thanks for calling. Of course. Hey, my investment club, Theta Capital, at the University of Michigan, is looking at a biotech company with a really promising pipeline. What's your opinion on Vertex Pharmaceuticals, Jim? Vertex is excellent, and your club really knows what it's doing. That is an amazing company. A year ago, people talk, a couple guys that when I went to the Super Bowl said, listen, Jim, you've got to recommend the stock. I pulled it. I pulled the file, looked at it, and I said, when it comes in, I will recommend it. It never came in. You've got a winner there in Vertex. Mark in Wisconsin. Mark. Dr. Kramer, thank you for taking my call. Oh, you're quite welcome. How can I help? I uh, got one in IT services. I currently hold it. I have a massive position of 100 shares. So my question is, should I be adding to ticker symbol KD, Kindrell? Okay, Kindrell's doing quite well. That last quarter was good. I think we're going to get rid of the overhang, start seeing some great numbers, and it's going to be very cheap. And Martin Schroeder's doing a great job, so I think you've got a winner. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, Eli Lilly sees a bright future with this agile new drug. Can its popularity impact other big sectors? Stick with Kramer. Nonsense about this new class of weight loss drugs. Think Ozempic, aka Wagovi from Nova Nordis, Eli Lilly's Munjaro. Tonight, I want to set the record straight. Full disclosure, I own a ton of Lilly for the Chapel Trust and recommend the stock for ages, precisely because this diabetes slash weight loss drug that can also help with blood pressure. In fact, it seems to help curtail heavy drinking and also help people with uh, suffering from sleep apnea. Right now, though, Munjaro is only approved as a diabetes treatment, but it's selling like mad. Hard to find in many places. Now, Novo Nordisk markets its drug as Ozempic for diabetes and Wagovi for weight loss. Unlike Lilly, Novo Nordisk has approval for both. Lilly expects Munjaro to be approved by weight loss by the end of the year, although it's already being used off-label. I want to make all of this clear because it's just now dawning on people that there could be some real disruption here. I wouldn't be surprised if they alter the way people eat and drink pretty substantially. Just yesterday, Walmart, the largest grocer in the country, said that they're already beginning to have an impact on sales. Suddenly, those who ignore these drugs and the way they alter our tastes recognize that there could be a big bottom line impact for everything in the food and beverage space. When Walmart makes these comments, you know, you go from anecdotal worries about the food and beverage stocks to empirical existential concerns about entire store aisles. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about how many people even take these drugs. Morgan Stanley projects that 24 million people, or nearly 7% of the U.S. population, will be taking one of these medications by 2035. I personally think that's a low-ball number. In August, we had Eli Lilly's excellent CEO, Dave Ricks, on the show, who I think explained the impact of these drugs very well. Before we had Prozac, people thought doctors would tell you, well, you're just a little sad. We know that's not true. There's something called clinical depression. We now treat it like a disease. I think in five, ten years, we'll look back and think about a chronic weight management and obesity the same way. That we used to say, well, why don't you just eat a little better and exercise? And we'll learn that a lot of people will need a medication to control their weight adequately over time. And with these drugs, on average, they cause you to lose 18% of your body mass. Of course, we don't know exactly how they work, but we do know they changed our tastes sometimes radically. Specifically, they make it so you no longer crave snacks. It's like they give you an an immunity to refined sugar. You don't even miss it. On top of that, when you're taking one of these drugs, you feel full almost instantly, meaning you end up eating less overall and maybe even saving some money. 
That's why these weight loss drugs are causing radical moves in anything food related, because any company that makes food, especially snacks, will most likely see its growth capped or even eroded. Yes, the drugs are that remarkable. Once tens of millions of Americans are taking Ozempic or Monjaro, you better believe the packaged food company is going to take a big hit. If Walmart's already seeing weakness in the food aisle, can you imagine what happens when Eli Lilly, which has huge capacity coming on, actually gets approval for weight loss? Or if it gets approval for stopping two drinks nights at night because it makes alcohol about as attractive as drinking water? Now, how about costs? All right, well, the cost is almost $1,000 per self-administered shot, which should be taken once a week. Aside from diabetes, doctors wanted to prescribe either drug for the chronically obese uh, and for those with high blood pressure that's resistant to current drugs. Insurance will almost definitely cover that. But if you don't fall into those categories, if you're just kind of overweight, you're going to have to pay out of pocket. And that's a big gating factor. However, these drugs have so many potential uses that I think a tremendous number of people will be reimbursed for the use. We don't know which food companies will be hardest hit, and they'll certainly try to fight back with all sorts of new entries. But the bottom line is these new weight loss drugs will dent sales to the point where the food and beverage stocks deserve to trade at a lower price earnings multiple, especially since they had anemic growth to begin with. And that's exactly what's happening right now. And a heck of a lot of people will be a lot healthier and wealthier for it. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mid Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer.